Hi, I'm Neil Skupski, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome back to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Today is episode 45, and we're speaking to top 30 doubles player, Neil Skupski. In the early days of the podcast, we had his brother on, Ken, and he told us all about growing up in Liverpool and his route to the top game. Today, we speak to his younger brother, Neil, and he tells us about his route to the top game. We talk a bit about this COVID situation, but more about his tennis life, playing with his brothers, win his first title with his brother. And now lately, he's been playing with Jamie Murray. We learn all about that. Great episode. If you're new to the show, quick hello. I'm Fabio, your host. You'll mainly find me at the Functional Tennis Instagram account. Feel free to reach out. And also, if you enjoyed the episode or enjoyed any of our other episodes, please do leave us a five-star review and comment on iTunes. It really means a lot to us. Okay, here we go with Neil. Enjoy. Hi, Neil. How are you? Yeah, doing well, Fabio. Yourself? I'm doing very well, as good as could be. I normally work from home, so not so much has changed here, but it's all good. But tell me about you. I hear you're doing a lot of training these days. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult at the moment, especially with uh, the COVID-19. Everyone's in lockdown around the world. But yeah, I came back to I came back to Liverpool in England probably like three weeks ago now, just after the, the lockdown had been announced because I was in the States. I was over there. We were all getting ready for the, the American Swing like Indian Wells, Miami, and then I was going to probably play Houston. But once I was, Jamie called me actually saying Indian Wells was getting cancelled the day before I was meant to fly out from Louisiana. So I basically unpacked all my stuff, basically started to think when, when am I next going to be able to play? Luckily enough, I was able to practice a little bit at the college I went to at LSU, in Louisiana. So I was there practicing for a little bit, but then everything was starting to get locked down and I, needed, I wanted to get back to England just before because I'm only on like a, a 90 day visa so I had to get back before that ran out and yeah I've been training here ever since um, the LTA have been helping me out um, they've sent me some fitness things they've sent me a walk bike just keeping me going um, and also I I work with um, a fitness trainer in Liverpool uh, Carl he's given me a lot of stuff to do um, via a mobile app he gives me workouts every day and there's videos on there if I don't know how to do the exercise and just look that up and he's demoing what I should be doing. And then if um, I can also video myself and send it to him and then he'll correct it and send it me back and where I'm going wrong. But yeah, he's, he's been great. Uh, that's, that's actually Carl Page. He's, not, he's actually on Instagram if you wanted to check him out. Uh, tennis underscore strong. But yeah, he's doing a great job and I'm just trying to get as fit as possible ready for actually whenever we return really. We've actually had some of Carl's video on Instagram and he's put up some good videos up there. So we do follow him and we do know of him. So it's good to see he's you're using an app to interact with him. And I know the feeling when a gym guy, when a fitness trainer gives you an exercise, it gives you a bit of a program and then you go off to your own gym or your home to do it and you can't remember little bits and you're like, no. And yeah, so the, the app's good and the feedback is good to have with him. So is there anything specifically you're working on? Uh, Tip Sarvage had something online about people like just don't do exercise for doing 
exercise for the sake of it. Work on your weaknesses and a few other things like Dimitrov's fitness trainer was saying the same. Now is the time to work on the weakness, which stuff you can't work on throughout the year. So is there anything specifically you're working on? Um, I think at the moment, because we've got so much time, I'm actually just trying to get in the, the rhythm of actually working out on a regular basis. I was kind of quite lacking that kind of um, focus when I was playing on the tour. Um, it was kind of like I would do it here and there. I wouldn't do it like all the time. I've kind of gone to the rhythm where I'm, I'm, I'm training every day now rather than Sunday off, um, which will help me when, obviously once I get back onto the tour to have that um, in place. Um, but basically, just I'm actually just trying to um, do a lot of body weights because uh, we don't have a lot of equipment at the moment. I'm just trying to get as much, um, and I get quite quite dynamic, really, with my movements, because that's what it doubles is mostly about, about dynamic and fast twitch movements with reactions. Um, so we're doing quite a bit of um, speed work. But yeah, that's basically what I'm doing at the moment. Um, I mean, we don't really know the time limit of what we, what we have. We know at the moment it's not going to be till end of July, early August. That's when we think we're going to be back. But I, I personally don't think we'll be back um, this year. I think it's very difficult, um, especially in our sport, being worldwide, and uh, being all over the world. But yeah, it's, it's just something that we've got to uh, deal with and um, try and keep ourselves focused and um, mentally prepared, really. Yeah, no, it's going to be really tough. Obviously, you think it could be August, but as you're saying, it probably won't be this year. And I'm I'm feeling a bit like you. There may be some local events in the UK you'll be playing, but I don't think the actual tour will come into full operation until uh, the latter parts of the year. I'm hoping in a few weeks we're going to have Craig Tiley on the podcast and really excited to see his feedback and what he thinks, because he obviously must be scared. Is Australia going to happen next year? But tell me, how's, how's the eating going while in lockdown? Are you quite strict or do you give yourself a bit of leeway? I mean, I've, I've been eating normally, really, as, as best as I can. And obviously, food isn't as, as available as, as normal. You can't really go out as much. You can only try and tell you to uh, just get your essentials. But yeah, you're obviously getting peckish here and there. So you're obviously eating some, some things that you wouldn't normally eat, like a especially around Easter time, you have chocolate eggs. Um, but I've been, I've managed to stay away from them. Um, so yeah, I've been, I've been keeping pretty well actually. Um, but yes, it's, it's very difficult like mentally to, cause you don't know when you're going to be back. So you just, at the moment that it's been like three weeks and it's not too bad, three or four weeks. It hasn't been too bad, but it's just got to be, you got to stay focused as long as possible and try and change things up a little bit so it doesn't get boring. Um, so eventually, I would try to change my workouts a little bit to try and spice it up a little bit. So it's a bit of a change. So it's something new rather than just doing the same thing every day um, and then get repetitive. True. Variation will be the key here. But having a routine and variation, so combining them two. And for those that don't know, or for those that haven't listened to the previous podcast with with Neil's brother, Ken, he's obviously, he's sorry, also a doubles pro player. Have, Have you in contact with him daily? How's he getting on? Yeah, he's doing well. I mean, it's probably the first time he's been at home for quite a while now, um, especially with the three kids. Um, I think he started the year. He played probably, I think it was like, he was like nine weeks away out of the 10, um, something along those lines. He did really well in Australia, the quarterfinals. Um, so he's had a, he had a good start of the year, but he was away a lot. So it's obviously nice for him to be at home with the kids and his wife in Liverpool. Um, he only lives about five minutes away. 
but yeah, we are in contact all the time. Um, I'm FaceTiming him and his kids like probably every two hours of probably getting sick of me. But yeah, it, it is obviously nice to try and stay in touch with them as much as possible because I'm sure it's not easy for, for him and also the kids to be indoors all the time. And so it's just trying to keep that communication going. And yeah, exactly. I mean, if you don't keep in contact, it can be quite tough mentally and it's, you just got to keep on trying to progress and try and speak to as many people as possible. Like for me, coming back to England, I've got in touch with more of my older friends that I kind of lost touch with from like high school and like the, the local tennis club I went to when I was younger. Um, it's nice to kind of, kind of talk to them and see how they're doing, how, they're, how they've been, because it's, it is tough being on the road so much. You kind of, you don't get much time to speak to your old friends. So you, it's nice to come back. Now the time is to speak to people, see how they're all doing and make sure they're okay. Yeah, that's it. You're right. It's a good time to catch up with people. And our last COVID-19 question before we move on to a bit about your proper, how you started with tennis. Should Liverpool win the league by default? There's a lot of talk about Liverpool being handed the league. There's a lot of talk about just not handing anyone anything. I think Liverpool are so far ahead in the league. I don't think that's the the main issue really I think it's to do more about like the relegation there's a lot of money at stake for them guys and also for like the, the European spots we get into the Champions League they're the more the, the spots that we don't really know or unsure that's what's going to happen I mean Liverpool are so far ahead I think they only need to win one or two more matches and they've won the league in the next nine so I mean it would be nice for Liverpool to be given the league but also you don't really want it to be given to us you want to win it so hopefully they can get back to um, playing football. If it's behind closed doors, I'm sure that's what will happen. Um, but it will be nice to finish the league off um, rather than again hand it to us. We asked Jamie, we had him on Instagram Live last week and we asked him, because uh, we knew we were going to be talking to you this week and we asked him, should Liverpool win the league? And his response is, well, if they win their next two games, yes, they should. And that was his answer. He was, he was having a slight dig. Yeah, but I mean, Jamie's a bit delusional with all the football stuff um, <laughs> because he, uh, he thinks that United will finish in the top two next year and Liverpool will be fighting for fourth spot. So I don't know what kind of, where he's getting his information from. And also he had like, I think he had a couple of side bets with like some tennis people that like Marcus Rashford was going to score more than Sadio Mane this year. And like, he's going to get more assistance for Roberto Firmino. So he doesn't really know his his football knowledge, um, but the, the more and more, the more and more I'm around him, he'll slowly um, be up to speed with the football. I love. We'll tell him to stick to the tennis for now. Yeah, <laughs> nice. That's hilarious. Now let's talk a bit about tennis. You obviously you're from Liverpool. When did you start playing tennis? Uh, I started playing when I was around three years old. Um, my my parents' house actually backs onto a tennis club, so from a very young age. Um, obviously, my brother was six years older than me. He he was already playing at a, a good level. Um, he was a county level um, player when he was in the tens, and then I started when I was three. So I was I was always walking around um, the court with a little racket, hitting the ball over the net, hitting my brother with the racket. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it, it's been a, a very young age since I've been playing. Even it was just mess around in the garden or. Um, attempting to play on a full court. I've kind of been born with a, a racket in my hand, really. So I've been doing that ever since. And it's brought to me into the, this position at the moment where I'm playing 
big tournaments week in, week out with um, with Jamie and Natasha, my brother. And was Ken an inspiration for you when you're a little kid seeing him playing county? You're like, God, I, I want to be, I want to be like Ken. I want to be better than Ken. Yeah, I mean, I think you always want to. There's always a sibling rivalry. When I was growing up, I always wanted to. Ken was a big inspiration for me, um, and the better he did, um, the better I wanted to be. So he was always beating up on me on the tennis court at a very young age. So that kind of inspired me to get better and improve and work harder. And then we kind of didn't really see each other for a while because he went to college, he went to Louisiana State University, uh, just after 18, 19, and he was there for four years. So I didn't really see him. I, I would see him when he came back for the summer. Um, we were trained together. And obviously, he'd improved a lot, but he could also tell that I'd improved. And then when he stopped, he went pro. And then it was my turn to go to, to college in America. So we didn't see each other for eight or nine years. Yeah. So it was a bit of long. It was a long time, really. Um, but we always stayed in contact every day and talking about how we can improve. And then the, one of the goals was to eventually um, play on a tour together because Ken had, Ken had played singles a little bit. He had got to a good level. I think it was four or five hundred in singles, but he had gone into doubles. And he was top hundred. He got up to forty-four, I think it was, with Colin Fleming. Um, not far off his first couple of years playing doubles. So he stopped playing double. He stopped playing with one of his partners um, when I had finished college in 2012. And then he was looking for a partner. And I was slowly moving up the rankings at the start of the year, won a couple of futures. And then he decided he wanted to give us a go and see what happened because it was a, it was kind of, he was top 100 and I was like 700. So it was a big risk for him to mm. play with me. Um, but he had the belief in my game and he thought I was good enough to be at a high level on the double saw. So yeah, that's what that's how I, I kind of all started really, me and him playing together. And we had played a little bit growing up at our local club in like the the summer leagues against other clubs, but not like a, not at a great standard. So we didn't really know what to expect really. But we kinda of had we had a good start and straight away together and made the final of Nottingham Challenge after getting a wild card, lost in the final to Piers and Murray. Um so then we kinda of just kept on going. And I think we won four challenges that year and made a final of an ATP in uh, in Moscow. So that was a, a good year for me and also it kind of established us on the tour. Great. I'd say it must have been so exciting playing with your brother, your big brother on the tour. Like that is something you would have dreamed of. But I'm just going to just jump back to college quickly. I did. I thought you guys overlapped in LSU at some stage, but you obviously find out now you didn't. But we've our mutual friend, James Klusky, who we've mentioned on this podcast before. He must have been there for a bit of Ken's life there and a bit of your life there. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So me and Ken, I think Ken finished in 2000. And I think I went in 2012. Um, but James Klusky, he he was there with Ken um, for maybe two years of it. And then he was there for my my freshman year. So James, uh, he was kind of, he kind of looked after me when I arrived in college. And he kind of, he showed me around, showed me the ropes, showed me what to expect while playing for LSU. We actually lived together for a year. I mean, James is a great guy. Um, we stay in contact with him. But yeah, so he kind of, he overlapped my, mine and Ken's experience. He played with Ken. Uh, they played into AA together. And Ken's a, a good friend of James's. So I think James, James actually went to Ken's wedding a few years ago now. Uh, but they, they're in close contact. 
I would have known Ken originally from James and you through James as well. I remember you played the Dublin Futures. I know for once, for sure. Who did you play with? I actually played James in the final. Um, I played with Albano Olivetti. Oh, yeah. We beat Klusky and McGee in the final. That was my first ever, that was my first ever Futures title, actually. Great. I think that was a champion's breaker in the third, was it? Yeah, I think it was. I remember, I think it was like 10... I think it was pretty close, like ten seven. I think it was. Yeah, like but it was, it's obviously it is difficult to play against a good friend like James, especially in my in my first final. But yeah, obviously that's where it all kind of started my progression into doubles. I remember you were playing singles back then. Did you want to give singles a go first of all, or were you just like, no, I'm going doubles all in? No, I, I gave singles a go for like I think three months maybe after coming out of college. But I think you kind of you kind of know your level. Because Ken, Ken had tried it. He got to about 400, I think it was. It was a tough, like a tough slog traveling the world by yourself, um, going to all different countries, some not so great. And I think I was probably on the same standard as Ken in singles. Because you kind of, in when I went to college, Ken was, I think, top 10 in singles. Um, he had some good wins. Um, and then when I went to college, I think my highest was probably like 25, I think it was. Obviously didn't like college up. So I kind of knew where my level was at, really. Obviously, the opponents were different because people ch- people going to college change all the time. But I kind of knew that if I wanted it, I would go with singles. It was going to cost me a lot of money, a lot of traveling, and also it would take a lot out of me. So I'd, you have to be kind of realistic with yourself. And the best thing for, for myself and my family um, on a playing, playing-wise and also financially is for me to play doubles with Ken because um, we thought we'd have a lot of success playing doubles and that's the way we thought we'd make money. Great. Yeah, no, that was a wise decision rather than spend five years trying to give the singles a go and <laughs> then decide, okay, I think so. It takes a lot of courage to make that decision early in the career because you were quite young then. So I think that was a great decision, headstrong decision that you made. But just my last question on college tennis, obviously, I think it's a such a topical subject the minute should teenagers or go to college and people federation are trying to push kids to college because the men's game and female game is so tough what did you learn the most from going to louisiana i mean i think going to college was probably the best thing i've ever done i think a lot of young aspiring professionals should at least experience college for at least a year you get a lot of you get stronger you get, you get a lot of matches in you grow as a person uh, you grow up and you become more independent. I mean, I think for me personally, to go on the tour at 18 wouldn't have been a good thing. Um, I, probably, I probably wouldn't be playing now. Um, so I think people should go to college, experience it, and then you can kind of see where you're leveled at. I mean, if you're 18 and you're tearing up college, then go for one year, come out of it and go with pros and see where you, where you get to. But there's been players like, like a John Isner, Steve Johnson, um, they've gone to college they've got a lot of matches in they've matured as people and as players and they've come out come out of college fresh and ready to go on the tour at like 22 so they've they've enjoyed their college experience they've gone to football games in front of like 102,000 they've gone to baseball games they've gone to all different sports mingled with all different athletes they've enjoyed it and then they've gone on to the tour it's something new they're fresh and then people don't really know how to handle them because they new on the tour and then they, they just they've beaten everyone in the futures they breathe through challenges and then they they arrive onto the main stage on the ATP tour and they're so 
have got that mentality of winning all the time, it, it kind of just progresses into winning match on to the ATP Tour and they're at the top of the game now. And John Isner's been in the top 10, I think maybe top 10 or top 20 finished there for like last eight years, um, which is which is an amazing achievement, really. Um, and a lot of the greats of the game have been into college and done well on the tour. Yeah, there's Kevin Anderson, Robert Farah, there's load more. Just thinking about it now, in the top 100 doubles, I'd say a high percentage of them have actually gone to college, mainly US college. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of guys. Joe Solsby, Rajiv Ram, uh, recent Australian Open champions. They both went to college. Illinois and Memphis. Obviously, myself and Ken, we went to college. Robert Farah. So there is a lot of doubles guys who have been to American college playing doubles. I mean, a lot of the guys, they tend to play singles for a long time and then decide to play doubles because the singles is like kind of getting slow and not getting the results they need. But I think it's just the you play so many matches in college, you play a lot of doubles matches, so you kind of learn a lot of the doubles tactics rather than some of the singles guys who go pro at the young age. They just, they just go on tour and they play singles and they don't play many doubles matches. They might play some doubles, but they're not taking it. They don't really take it that seriously because they think that the singles is more important. So they'll play doubles, but they won't do well. So they'll probably play like one or two matches a week or every couple of weeks. They're not kind of getting that, in that rhythm of playing and progression. But um, when you play college, you play doubles. You're playing doubles matches every week, playing a couple probably. So you're learning, you're always working on it. The coach will be drumming into you that doubles is important, doubles is important. And it just helps your all-round game, really, like the serve and volley aspect for singles. So the more and more doubles um, you play in college, it definitely helps for when you come out of college. But for, for the likes of me and Ken, we played doubles at our local club since we were like eight years old. So we were playing matches every week against older people. So we were always getting um, people to play against. We were always playing off rather than playing against weaker people. So we were always improving and we were learning together and progressing. And that's why I think we're where we are today. I find that there's two groups of people who are exceptional at doubles. All my pals here have gone scholarship to the States. They've played at a good level. I absolutely love playing doubles with them because they just know what to do in the court and they're such good doubles-specific players. And also any of the Brits. With our club here, we may play fixtures against Queen's Club, all Wimbledon Club. And Brits are so good at doubles. Like their hands are always unbelievable. And I think it's, you're right, playing a lot of club doubles, playing on grass, you have different feel for the ball. I always find that they're so exceptionally talented. Like I think the best slice in the world, most Brits have a great slice. And it's I love playing with them because you learn so much, but they're so good that they can make your life misery as well at all levels. <laughs> I think the, the weather also... Uh, the fact with that because a lot of a lot of our our um, our courts in England are like artificial grass, so the ball skids through a lot. Or we're playing indoors where the courts are quite fast, so obviously people develop hand skills of using the slice. Um, like, like people like Tim Henman, and you got Dan, Daniel Evans now who have great slices. Yes. So I think mean, that's probably where it's been developed from fast courts at a young age. Yeah, it's a, a little shot once you can hit it right. So, okay, so lately you've been playing with Jamie Murray, which is, I'm sure, a dream. But what was it like when you made the decision to, I'm not sure exactly how it went, talk to your bro and say, look, I've got this great opportunity to play with Jamie. How is it like separating from your brother? Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a very difficult decision. Um, 
obviously it would have been a lot easier if Ken wasn't my brother, but we always thought that we would play together. Um, Ken always thought that he would play with me until he stopped playing tennis, but we never really thought anyone would actually ask one of us to play with somebody else. Like you don't really think that like, you don't really think someone's going to ask uh, Mike Bryan, let's, let's play doubles together. True. Um, and then he's going to leave Bob. It was a difficult decision. It, it happened last year. I think it was during the Rome Masters. I got a message of Jamie saying he had, he was stopping at Bruno. He wanted to start start the partnership for, the, for a couple of years and see what it was kind of like a, a project, really. So I kind of spoke to my family about this with the Ken. And obviously it was a, a tough decision. Um, but I had to kind of, I had to take it really because Jamie, multiple Grand Slam winner, he was top 10 at the time. And the opportunity of maybe playing Davis Cup and uh, the Olympics. So that was, that was a big thing for me. So Ken said to me, I mean, you have to take it. He's been very good about it ever since. Um, he's, been, he's very supportive. So yeah, no, that's kind of how it all happened. Um, I mean, I, I kind of I play with Ken every so often now um, when I'm not playing with Jamie. Um, so that's still a nice thing to do, really, rather than because that would have been tough for me to just not play with Ken ever again. So it's nice to play with him every so often. We played Doha this year. Uh, we played Eastbourne last year. Um, and hopefully I can play with him more in the future. But the thing, things are going well with Jamie. We had a good end up last year, made the semi-final of the US Open, made a couple of Masters Series semi-finals. And then we, I did the call up to Great Britain to play Davis Cup in Madrid, um, and we reached the semi-final. So that was probably what my highlight of my tennis career so far, uh, representing my country. Yeah, I'd say it's unbelievable to represent your country at the highest level. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. That purpose is also in their name. ASICS is an acronym which means Anime Sano Incorporate Sano, a Latin phrase meaning sound mind, sound body. Today, the brand is still dedicated to that founding belief of demonstrating the positive effects sport and movement can have on our mental well-being all over the world. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever, which includes the new Court FF3 Novak, the shoe designed from the ground up with the help of Novak Djokovic. Get your pair now at ASICS.com. And have you played Ken yet in in a competitive match since last year? No, I haven't. I mean, I've played uh, played him in world team tennis. Um, I played for New York Empire and Ken was playing for the Orlando Storm. So that's a three-week event just after Wimbledon, traveling all around America. I think there's there's nine teams this year. So I've played him in that a couple of times now, and I didn't enjoy it, even though it's quite a relaxed atmosphere. Didn't enjoy it. So I haven't thinking of actually playing Ken in a competitive ATP match or a Grand Slam. Doesn't sound good to me. So hopefully that never happens. I'd rather be... Unless it was in a Grand Slam final, I, w- I think we'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, unless uh, I, I think you, if Bodhi is, he, as you said, he's had a great start to year. He's getting better and better. His results getting better, and you're doing great as well. So I think if once this tennis season get kicks off, whenever it does, I think it will happen someday. So it'd be just interesting to know your thoughts on you know somebody you've, you know in your whole life, and you know you, you know their patterns, you know exactly what they do. You've been told what they do, and he knows what you do. So it's always interesting to see how that game of poker comes along. 
we had the op- uh, actually opportunity. Jamie played. I played with Jamie in Cincinnati last year, and he played against his brother Andy and Feliciano Lopez. Okay, that was a kind of that was strange because that was the first time I had played Andy, and also I'd never kind of been in that situation of brothers playing brothers. So that was quite a, a strange match, really. You could just tell that no one was comfortable playing throughout the match. Um, so I'm guessing once I do play Ken, it'll be the same situation and scenario of not being able to settle down and relax and, and just playing our tennis. Um, we're obviously going to be worrying about each other and hopefully hoping that, well, obviously you want to win, but... You don't upset. Exactly, yeah. It, it will be tough, but... I can imagine the tight call on a on a big point. No, we let Hawkeye take care of that. But what was it like winning? Yeah. What was it like winning your first ATP Tour title with your brother last year? It was two years ago, two thousand and eighteen. What had happened was the, our first year we had made the final in Moscow, and we lost the final. So ever since then, we we had a dip in form after the second year, mm-hmm. um, and we've been wanting to play a, another final ever since. And then we got the opportunity of playing a final in Montpellier. Um, we played against Ben McLachlan and Hugo Meese. We played a really good match, actually. But it was, we were quite nervous towards the end of the match, obviously, because you haven't won it an ATP mm. together. I mean, Ken had won them in the past, but I had never won one. So to actually get through that match, kind of took a monkey off our back. And it was, it was a great feeling to actually win my first one. And also with, my brother being by my side, it was great for the family. It's uh, it's been great ever since. And also we've won a couple more. We won last year in Budapest, which is probably one of our highlights because it, it's on clay. Uh, we don't see ourselves as massive yeah. clay court players. We never we never grew up playing on clay. So we've only really adapted after playing on the tour, on the on dirt. So it was a, a big success for us. And it's obviously nice to win more with my brother. And, uh, yeah, it's great for the family and also, um, obviously, for us and our ranking. I'd say the family, absolutely. I could just imagine the celebrations at home. Like, it must be so exciting. The two Skipsky <laughs> brothers win the first title. And even just playing together, I say it's just such an electric atmosphere when you guys are playing together. But, yeah, so, as you say, hopefully you get to be other opportunities in the future to play together, which will be exciting. But from playing with Jamie, what have you learned since playing with Jamie? Anything that you've just stood out since you've started playing together? I would say probably just sticking to more patterns and also hitting more high percentage shots. So I think he'd seen like my kind of game, which is, can be quite, I can quite, I can dominate with my forehand and have a good serve, but he wanted to be more like more consistent, um, but also being dangerous at the same time. So I put a lot of work into that. So I've been practicing on making a lot more balls um, hitting at certain, at certain points in the court so we can gel more as a team so I can set him up when he's at the net. So I think that's what kind of, at the start, we, we played Wimbledon together and we lost in the first round of five sets to Dodic and Polasek, which turned out to be a very good pair. But I think it was just we hadn't had time to gel together and play as play matches. So the more and more that we got to play, he kind of, he made me more aware of what you got to do to be at the top of the game. So to be more consistent and make, don't give points away, make the team earn the points. And also the more we play together, the more we were able to put patterns together, which has helped us um, with our success this year. Well, in 2019, the more and more we play together, the more instinctive 
Um, and also he's kind of told me to be a lot more calmer on the court. Not not like after after the point's over, more like in the point. So staying calm. I don't hit my shots rather than being quite frantic and just breathing rather than being so anxious. So just to stay calm, draw the point. And then after the point's over, I can be a bit more active when the, when the, the point's going ahead. Stay calm, read the play, read the ball, and then go hit your shot. Great. And you talk about being more consistent, but dangerous also. Can you just explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I think it's just a bit more margin for error, really. I think I was aiming for too much of close to lines. I was hitting the ball too flat, so it was going with a trajectory quite close to the net, which brings the net into play. So it's basically hitting the the same type of shot with a lot of pace, okay. but with a bit more bit, bit more spin. So it will go the net with a higher trajectory and also aiming inside the court more rather than hitting the outside of the tram line, aiming for the single line. So there's a bit more margin for error. So if I do mistime it a little bit, it'll still go in rather than if I mistime the ball and aim it for the line, it will go out. So okay. basically, I mean, it's small things, mm. but they count for a lot because most of the time in doubles, it's just a point here and there. You see a lot of the time when you look at the stats at the end of the match, it's like points one, 51% to 49%. Very little in it. The more and more points that you don't give away, the more chance you have of winning that match. So it's especially in especially in doubles because you have the no lad scoring in doubles. So it's deciding point of juice and also there's there is a ten point tie break. So the more and more consistent you can be, um, but also being dangerous at the same time and attacking, then that's also also gonna help your chances of winning the match. Yeah, I think that's a good point there. And also reminds me of something about being aggressive but consistent was we had Dave O'Hare on here a few episodes ago and he was talking about the guys he's working with Salisbury and his team and he was saying when they were working on the serve that some of the percentages of the serve were too high like they were 85% and they're like wait wait that's way too high like why like it shouldn't be 85% reason was he wasn't putting enough kilometers per hour on the serve so they had to bring add some speed and all of a sudden you know, he's missing a few more, but he was getting at freer points. So he's trying to just get the balance between not being overly tentative and trying to be dangerous a little bit. So I hope it's sort of the same thing. That's what I've been working on as well recently, um, especially at the start of the year, was my, my serve. I've always thought of, I've had a good serve. I get a lot of free points off it, especially off my first serve. Um, but my, percent, my percentage is probably like 55% of times. So I've worked on like the percentage recently and I've I've been over like 80%. So that's probably what you're talking about is the fine balance of do you go after your serve and not be worried about missing a few or do you try to just make sure you get your first serve in but it won't be as fast and the ball might come back. Um, so it's the fine margin of what you do really. I mean, obviously you'd like a fast serve that goes in a lot, yeah. but that's not always the case though. Even the people with amazing serves, they don't serve like 85%. Um, I think they're normally like 68, 70%. So it's just a fine margin really in trying to find that balance. You're right. Just yeah, finding that balance is true. And yeah, so that's great that 
Jamie has, you know, you've learned from him. I'm sure he's learned something from you. Everybody can always learn from each other. But also behind the background, you do a bit of work with Louis Caillet. How instrumental has he been to your game? Yeah, so I left, I left college in 2012 and kind of been working with Louis Caillet when he'd been with Colin Fleming full time. So I kind of, I knew a bit about Louis leaving college. I've seen some of his stuff on YouTube. Um, but I didn't really get to work with Louis that much. I mean, I got grips and drabs a little bit in the past probably four years out of college. Um, but I've seen Louis a bit more recently because my rankings got higher. It allows me to see Louis at the Grand Slam level, at the Masters Series. But Louis's been a, a massive influence in my game. He's taken it probably to the next level. He knows where he's talking about in doubles. He's coached many world number ones like Daniel Nester. Um, he's obviously got Jamie to world number one. He's done great with um, Joe Salisbury and also a lot of the Brits like Johnny O'Mara, um, who's he's obviously excelled recently um, up the rankings. Um, so it's gone really well with Louis. He's changed my game a little bit, but he's also he's kind of um, made the game a lot simpler. He kind of he tells you. If the ball comes here, you hit it here. The ball goes there, hit it over there. Kind of just makes it the ball simpler um, rather than trying to make it too complicated for you. Because when you're in a match, you don't really want to be thinking about all these shots in your head. Basically, you just want to have a clear mind of what you want to do. So when the ball comes, you already know where you want to hit the ball rather than thinking in your head, oh, where, where am I going here? Should it lob? Should it hit an angle? Um, so he kind of simplifies it and he just, he doesn't like, he likes hard work. So that's kind of, that's where I put the hard work from and uh, he's made double simpler for me. And that's why I think I've progressed. And also a lot of the British guys have progressed in the rankings. Uh, you guys are killing it in the doubles rankings. Was there seven or eight UK guys in the top hundred, which is pretty amazing stat. Like I say, it's good going to the tournaments and you just see all your mates there because I think from what I've seen on the tour, it seems to be either hanging around with your team or your countrymen. So it's, I'm sure it's great having a load of Brits around that you can, you know, you don't spend all day with them, but they're just good to check in with from time to time. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it makes a big difference because I think when you are traveling by yourself, uh, it can be quite lonely. When more and more Brits are at tournaments at the high level, you do hang around with them. You have someone that supports you when you're playing. They're on the sideline clapping, cheering you on. So it is, it is good in that way. But also, you've got people to practice with rather than you don't really want to... some guys that you don't want to practice with on the tour. So at least you know the guys. You have a settled practice partners. You practice with them. You hang out with them. You have to dinner with them. You occasionally go play golf with them. That's available. Um, because golf's a big thing for tennis players on the tour. I think mean, that's what people do when they try and get away and forget about tennis. So that's what... I mean, I love playing golf and... Um, so does my brother, people like Johnny O'Mara, the massive golf fans. Um, Jamie's a big golf fan. So we, we try and play as much golf as possible when on the tour. But obviously when it's right and not just before a match, it's when we have our downtime. Um, maybe we'll have a, a day off the next day. So um, it's just nice to kind of get away from tennis every so often uh, rather than solely focusing about tennis and stressing about it. When Johnny O'Mara was on, he was talking about how good his golf is and how, how he's the best Brit out there. Is is that true? I mean, Johnny, is, he's a very good golfer. He's trying to change my swing a little bit. Um, I'm trying to take all the, the pointers off him. I mean, 
I know who, I mean, Ken's a good golfer. He probably plays off about eight. Um, I think Johnny's probably around three or four, I think it is. He's a very good golfer, and I would probably say he's probably the best. I mean, you got Daniel Evans, very good at golf as well. Jamie's pretty good, Andy. I mean, a lot of the guys are pretty good at, at, at golf, but I would say it would probably be Daniel Evans or Johnny Amara that probably makes the British golf tournament. Johnny be delighted to hear you say that. But <laughs> just coming back to, like, you talk about situations and scenarios that Louis Kaye, you know, tells you to do. If a ball comes here, you do this. Ball comes here, you do that. Do you train those situations intensively in practice? Yeah, exactly. So just for like one scenario would be um, a serve then a first volley. Um, so you would serve and then if it comes to your, with the outside shot, you would obviously forehand back cross court. But if you are on the stretch, you can either go line or you can do like what he calls the antidote, which is the, the short volley cross. The short volley cross, it takes out the person at the net. It can't reach it. And also it's short enough where the guy on the baseline can't get it as well. So he kind of, when you're coming in the net to hit the first volley, the last thing you want to do is about be thinking about shots where you want to hit and being anxious. You want to be as calm as possible when impacting the ball. So you want to be as calm as possible um, and have a clear mindset of where this ball's going. So he, instead of the ball coming to you straight from the baseline and you trying to manipulate a shot from your body to go down the line, that would never be a shot that Louis would tell you to hit. He would tell you to just put the ball back in play if it's difficult, cross court, and be set at the net as a team. But then if you do get a volley where you can do something with, if it's a high volley, then you would put it down the line through the guy, um, finish the point off. Not you'd, ha- you'd have to hit the ball around him, not through him. Because that's what he always says in doubles. Hit the volley around the guy because the guys are so good these days with reactions that if you do hit the ball at the guy, they have an opportunity of getting the ball back. So Louis, he says to hit the ball around the guy and also to hit the shot that you want to hit. But the more and more you practice it, the less options that will come to your head. So it'll be more instinctive to just hit the right shot. So it's either a short volley or a deep one back to the baseline. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And also your partner's on the same page as you. So he doesn't need, obviously you don't look back or you get a ball in the face, but uh, he knows what's happening. And I'd say when you play the other Brits, it's another game of chess, is it? Because you kind of know what, you know, you're all working off the same page, really. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the Brits, they stick to Louis' tactics. But I think some guys, they, I think maybe someone like a Johnny O'Mara, he would kind of have his own interpretation on that and kind of play his own way in some ways. Same with me, I play my own way in some ways as well. But there's other guys that would stick to that process as much as possible. So they can be quite predictable on what they do. Mm. So you don't want to be doing too much of that because obviously a lot of the guys around the world, they do a lot of scouting. So if you come up against a Brit and and you're too predictable, they know what you're going to do. So you can't always do the yeah. same thing. You have to kind of keep it varied and change the tactics up a little bit so that your opponents are always on, on their toes rather than predicting what you're going to do. Um, but it, it, it is quite funny when you do play against the Brits because you kind of already know what's going to happen before the, when the coin's developing. <laughs> so that's why you kind of have to you change it up sometimes when you do play the Brits. Yeah. And tell me, last question based on a bit of court play. Has Jamie taught you the forehand lob? 
Uh, no, it hasn't. Uh, that's not a shot in my. Uh, I I think about playing. Yeah. I mean, normally if it comes to my forearm, the first thing for me is to get the ball back, probably harder than I came. Uh, my uh, I'm not really ever thinking about going to the the chip forehand lob. My strength is my forehand, I would say. So if I went to a chip lob, that would take away from my uh, my strength. Um, so that's taken away from the team, the team strength. So I'm trying to put my forearm set Jamie up at the net. So the more and more I try and do that, the more chance we have of winning rather than put us in a bad situation of yeah. lobbing. Because that's something I don't practice. There's no point in... I shouldn't be thinking I can hit the shot. I mean, I probably could hit the shot, but I would feel more inclined to hit it over the ball because I've practiced it more and more and especially in tighter situations I'd be more confident on hitting it over by falling rather than chipping it yeah no I, I totally agree with you it was a joke uh, but I've, I've seen him break hearts with that lob forehand <laughs> it's it's pretty incredible the way he does it yeah. just time and time again you're like man these guys are never going to be able to smash again because their confidence is destroyed uh, no, it's really good. It's a great weapon to have. Just a couple more questions here, Neil. First of all, most memorable match you've played in your career? Memorable, I would say there'll probably be two. Probably winning uh, my first ATP with Ken in Montpellier and also playing against Nadal and Valle Lopez in the semi final Davis Cup. And I think it was 12 or 13,000 people watching. And then in Spain so it was an amazing atmosphere and something hopefully I will be able to um, experience again Did you guys narrowly lose that if I remember right? Yeah we lost uh, it was one all in rubbers and we lost the, the match 6-6 six and six. so it was a tight one but um, Nadal he decided to turn up in both tie breaks both sets and he um, yeah, he turned into Superman I think How good are his hands compared to like you guys top doubles guys they're pretty good. Nadal? Yeah. I mean, he's, I would say he's one of the top double guys in the world, if not one of the best. His hands around the net are, are very good. But what surprised me was his, um, his, how big he hit the ball from the back of both sides, not just his forehand. At the start of the match, he hit a back in return. And I mean, he hit it down the line when I was at the net and I didn't see it. Um, so I have to kind of adapt to that very quickly or it was going to be a very quick match Okay anything else that stood out about him? Uh, I think it was just his aggression on the court I mean he, he never let up he was always on it he was telling Sally let's go let's go if Sally did something wrong he was so supportive but he just his, his energy on the court is exceptional uh, and he just doesn't let you with, doesn't give you any free points um, so you have to be on it non-stop and his, uh, his will to win is incredible I'd I'd say it's it's incredible. What an experience getting to you know play a close match in front of a big, would have been a partisan crowd you had there. I'm sure most there were mostly Spanish in there. I think it was twelve thousand Spanish and a thousand from Great Britain. So it was uh, it was partisan. <laughs> that definitely doesn't help. But like great experience, you, you'll get your opportunity to gun them down again. Last question: advice. We always ask whoever comes on to the show, just some advice for younger kids out there who want to be pros, maybe they're 14, 15, 16. And from your experience, what bit of information could you tell them? 
Uh, well, for me, I would say 14, 15, make sure, first of all, is to get your education. Get your education, get the, the right qualifications. I would say go to college, um, get a degree, because you, not everyone is going to make it as a tennis player. It's very difficult. Um, so make sure you get your degree so you've got something to fall back on. And, and also just, just work as hard as possible. At a young age, I was, I kind of took tennis not as seriously as other guys. But when I went to college, I kind of stepped up quite a bit. And now I, I take tennis very, very seriously. It's my job. And it's something that I feel I'm very unique and lucky to be doing. Um, because a lot of people don't have the opportunity to do what I'm doing. They would love to be doing what I was doing. Um, so just to work as hard as possible, get your education. Um, you have something to fall back on. Yeah, just keep on learning, really, and try not to give up um, because you will have bad times in tennis. I've had tough times, um, even on tour, um, playing with Cam. We've had tough moments. We've lost like eight matches in a row, but don't give up. Stick to the process um, and good things will happen. That's Thank you very much, Neil. Appreciate that. And appreciate you having it on the show. Thank you very much. And I wish you the best in the coming weeks, keeping up with your training, mixing it up. And hopefully the tour starts back sooner rather than later. So thank you. Thanks, Fabio. Stay safe. I hope you found that chat with Neil interesting. If you want to find out about his bro, Ken, head back to episode 12 where we had a great chat with Ken. I'll be back next week. Looking forward to it. And until then, stay safe, guys. Peace.